0: Last week we talked about icons, we talked about images, um, we talked about um, the development of this during the Middle Ages and certainly into the, well into the Middle Ages, kind of bringing us up to where things stand by the time the Reformation happens. We're going to do something similar here with the subject of you, there's no question what we're about to talk about, right? We're going to talk about Mary and the development of Mary from being a mortal sinner Mother of Jesus to being the venerated queen of heaven. Um, How do we get from here to across what seems to be an unbridgeable gap to here? How do we get here? And that's going to occupy us this morning. So, you know, when Jesus is crucified, what does he do? He, He looks from the cross. He sees the apostle John and he asks John, please care for my mother. He essentially asks him to adopt her as his mother and to care for her and show her the kind of care he can no longer show to her because he's going to be leaving this earth. And when you look at the life of the apostles, uh, I think the only thing that you can assume is that they showed respect and love to Mary as was due to her. Right. She's their Lord's mother. She's she's important. However, that I do not believe even one of the apostles in any of their writings ever give us any indication that they would have imagined the sort of things that the Roman Catholic Church eventually teaches about Mary. Um, and so we need to talk about that. I'm going to give you a quote. I'm going to give you a couple quotes from this book. Um, do not take this as an endorsement of this book. Um, this is a book called The Glories of Mary by Alphonsus Lagori. Here's what Alphonsus Lagori says. Let us then have recourse... Let us always have recourse to this most sweet queen if we should be sure of our salvation and if the sight of our sin terrifies and disheartens us. Let us remember that Mary was made queen of mercy for this very end that she might save by her protection the greatest and most abandoned sinners who have recourse to her. So who does Amphasis Liguori say we have recourse to when we sin? Mary. Now, as a red-blooded Protestant, my, my inclination is to say, I go to Jesus. But Lagori says, no, you go to Mary, and Mary will bring you to Jesus. So, um, you know, these are words that you would instead think belong to Christ, and instead they're given to Jesus' mother. I'm going to read you another one, and I want you to hear every word of this and think carefully about what's being said here. It's a prayer of Alphonsus that he writes to Mary. I'm reading this to you, by the way, because it's pretty easy for us to talk about the Roman Catholic view on Mary. I, I think it's another thing for us to actually hear some of the things that are said. Because, you know, in your head, you, do, you go, ah, you know, they've got a little bit of a hang up with Mary. <laughs> OK, well, is this a hang up? Well, I'll read this. O mother of mercy, extend thy hand to raise a poor fallen creature who implores your mercy. If I have your favor, I do not fear even the anger of God, for he is appeased by one prayer of yours. We fly to your protection, appease the anger of your son and restore us to his favor. Son's angry with us. What do we need? We need the mother, right? O Mary, defend thou me or tell me to whom I shall have recourse and who can protect me better than you. Can I find an advocate with God more merciful and more powerful than you who are his mother? You, having been created for the mother of the Savior, art designed to save sinners and have been given me for my salvation. O oh, Mary, save him who has recourse to you. I do not merit your love, but the desire you have to save the lost gives me the hope that you love me. And if you love me, how can I be lost? O my beloved mother, if as I hope I am saved by you, I will no longer be ungrateful. I will make amends by perpetual praises and by all affection of my soul for my past ingratitude and will make some return for the love you bear me. In heaven where you reign and will reign forever, I will always joyfully sing your mercies and forever I will kiss those loving hands that have freed me from hell as often as I have deserved it for my sins. O oh, Mary, my liberator, my hope, my queen, my advocate, my mother, I love you. I wish you well and will always love you. Amen, amen. Thus I hope, may it be so. Yes, John.
1: Well, with Mary as a co-redemptress who lived a sinless life and you pray to her, is, is Catholicism, even Christian, when you get right down to it, have they completely gone
0: off the reservation? I would just point you to Sproul's book, Are We Together? I think he deals with that really well. And I think his answer is we can be united with the Catholic Church on the ecumenical creeds to which we subscribe, we can be united with them on social issues that we agree with them on. But the idea that we are Christian in the same sense, I think, depends on the question of whether Rome is a true church or not. And I would answer that in the negative. But we're probably getting ahead of ourselves at this point because we need to talk about the Council of Trent to get there. Curiosity point. uh, Yeah. Get me
1: chronologically in line. Uh The writer
0: of that, what period in history? 1700s. So what I'm trying to do is what I want you to do is I want to give you an idea, you know, where Mary starts out and where we end up with Mary. Mm. And so I want to, to lay out what, I, what I'm going to suggest yeah. to you. I, I think I got this from J.N.D. Kelly. Are the three steps that bring us up to the present day mm-hmm. uh, on the doctrine of Mary. So how does this happen, right? How do we get to the place where Christians would pray such blasphemous prayers? I don't need to really, I don't really need to hold that back. Um, appease the anger of your son, right? I am, I'm saved by you. Like that, that kind of language. Um, The very glory that deserves to go to the son goes to the mother instead. So I can't give a complete account, but I want to give you at least an outline, a very broad idea of how this happens. So how it happens is this. The early church shows respect for Mary, which morphs into reverence, which becomes veneration. And eventually she becomes known as the queen of heaven and begins to receive prayers from people. Um, today, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary is an intermediary between us and her Son. So, if you want to read a good narrative on this, J. N. D. Kelly has a, a very well-known little book. It's called "Early Christian Doctrines." Um, he does a good job of summarizing these things and especially quoting from early sources to show you sort of where they emerge from. So, all I'm really doing is taking what J. N. D. Kelly says, and I'm just making it in plain language for us for us to understand. The first step in Mary becoming what she becomes by the time of the Reformation, because understand that that book by Alphonsus Ligori might have been written in the 1700s, but he is very much expressing the sort of prayers and the sort of view that is present at the time of the Reformation. So when you see the reformers addressing the issue of what well, I'm going to call Mariolatry, when you see the reformers addressing that subject, that's the context The what, what Ligori is saying is the kind of stuff that even my much beloved uh, Bernard of Clairvaux makes statements like that. Bernard of Clairvaux is making prayers like that as well. So uh, I've got my, my men that I'm very disappointed with, including Bernard. But, but so what we're talking about is how do we get to the point in the Reformation where we really need a Reformation, even on the subject of Mary. So the first step is Mary's perpetual virginity, the teaching of the church on the perpetual virginity of Mary. So if we talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, you know, we use the name the Virgin Mary, and I think what we mean by that is what? What do we mean as red blooded Protestants when we talk about the virgin virgin Mary? At the time of conception of Christ. Correct. We believe that she was a virgin when she had Jesus, right? Um, the perpetual virginity of Mary doesn't teach just that she was a virgin when she uh, gave birth to Jesus, but that she remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus and through to the very end of her life, that she never knew her husband, Joseph. In fact, I will just put it this way, that she was a bad wife. Right, that's part of the, the Roman Catholic teaching of, of uh, Mary, I would say, makes Mary a bad wife because she's not loving her husband, Joseph. In the way that the scripture says she should. But you know. There's. You get a Protestant talking about this. They just. There's no end to what we could say. So part of this belief. Means that what. When Jesus his brothers and sisters. Uh, and his mother appear. To meet him in public. What is it. What's the implication then. Who are these people. That the authors of scripture say. Are his brothers and sisters. <coughs> All right, Joseph's got a previous marriage. He's got children. Mary is just kind of married into this family with, uh, it's like the Brady Bunch. It's like the Brady Bunch. (laughs) And that has to be what's the case, right? Because she never knew anyone. She doesn't have any children of her own. So in order for him to have brothers and sisters, they'd be children from a previous marriage or cousins, in fact, um, I listened to a debate. James White did this. Roman Catholics used to debate James White, and now they don't do it anymore. But they, there was a debate. I think it was either Jerry Matatix or – I don't want to say it because I, I don't want to get the name wrong. He was debating a Roman Catholic on the subject of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And in his opening statements, he destroyed every argument that this man deployed before he got to make his opening statement. So when he made his opening statement, he didn't deviate from what he had written. So all he did was walk into all of the things that James White already had, had argued. Well, his, his claim in the, in the debate was these are his cousins, that these are Jesus's cousins and that they were perhaps adopted, uh, brought into Jesus's family, but they certainly weren't his brothers and sisters. Where do we find this being taught? What's the earliest source we find for the perpetual virginity of Mary. It is a heretical book, and I don't use that word offensively. Roman Catholics see it as heretical as well. Um, a heretical apocryphal book called the Ascension of Isaiah in the second century. Um, it was heretical because it spoke of theological subordinationism within the Trinity and implied a hierarchy in the Trinity. So the Father is greater than the Son and greater than the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, it was later condemned. And we'll talk about the church, the where it was condemned. But the earliest church leaders said nothing about Mary's being a perpetual virgin. Tertullian spoke of her as having a normal life and having children. Um, Origen later proposed her perpetual virginity so that's writing in the, the, the two and three hundreds. Um, but Ambrose in the fourth century is the first to really introduce the idea. Uh, Ambrose end up ends up being uh, um, yeah uh, Somebody who has a real impact on Augustine. So that's the first doctrine. I, the doctrine of perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, a late emergence. The earliest reference, again, coming from a heretical source that's rejected by the Catholic Church. But there's a second step in the process, which is the Immaculate Conception. Now, again, as Protestants, we probably hear the term Immaculate Conception and we think, oh, yeah, I believe in the Immaculate Conception. All right. Because what do we think it means? We think it means Jesus' conception. It does not. It does not refer to Jesus' conception. Um, uh, The best definition I could find is Pope Pius IX from 1854. Here's how he defines the Immaculate Conception. Uh, The most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by God Almighty, In view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. So, um, this is not a teaching about Jesus' conception, this is a teaching about Mary's conception, this is a teaching about how Mary was conceived. Um, the, the teaching is that Mary was sinless by a special work of God's grace. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to, if you wanted to to sort of simplify it a little bit, you could put it this way. God preemptively saved Mary while everyone else is saved after the fact of needing the salvation given, Mm -hmm. right? She's preemptively saved while in the womb and, and washed and cleansed the way that you and I will be when we go to heaven. Right? So it's almost like what we get just way earlier. That's how they would put it. Uh, So Mary lives the the life essentially that you and I would live on this earth uh, after the judgment and after the resurrection, right? With our new bodies. It's almost like Mary's, she doesn't have a new body, but she does have a sinless person. Because of God's work, right? They're, that's what they're going to say. They're going to say because of God's work, because of God's grace, she, she perhaps was conceived as a sinner. But immediately she is changed into something other, somebody who doesn't have original sin anymore. Um, so just so we're clear, though, it was 1800 years into church history before this dogma became defined by Rome, uh, before it actually becomes official dogma of the church. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a Roman Catholic writer. whose name is Ludwig Ott. And he admits that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is not explicitly revealed in Scripture. That's a quote from him. He says it's not explicitly revealed in Scripture. Um, my translation is the Bible doesn't teach it or even imply it. Because if the, te- if the Bible even implied it, they would camp out wherever it was implied. Um, but it's not even – you can't even remotely find it in Scripture. Um, Pope Leo I rejected the possibility that Mary was sinless. Um, the early church fathers, even before Augustine, universally taught that Mary had sinned. Uh, Origen taught that Mary sinned. Basil taught that Mary sinned. John Chrysostom taught that Mary sinned. Cyril of, Al- of Alexandria taught that Mary sinned. Irenaeus taught that Mary sinned. Tertullian and Hilary, all of them taught that Mary sinned, that she was a sinner. Um, the easiest place to find it is in the passage where she and her children come to stop Jesus in his ministry because they think he's lost his mind. Do you remember that passage? If you read all of these guys in their sermons on that passage, they all say this, is, this shows the human weakness of Mary. This shows that even Mary needed a savior, that she didn't believe in the earthly ministry of her son for a time. doesn't mean that she abandoned her son forever or that she didn't believe in his ministry. But when you come to that passage, it's hard to ignore the fact that. She seems to misunderstand the ministry of Jesus along with her children. So when you read the early church fathers, you just see this universal uh, assumption that, no, she's not perfect, that, she is, that she's a sinner too, just like all of us. Um, so where does it come from then if it doesn't come from the early church? In the 12th century, there's a British monk named Edimer, and he advocated that Mary was born free of original sin. St. Bernard. Uh, To the rescue, he warns the faithful that Edomer's idea was an unfounded innovation. You know, as much as Bernard of Clairvaux is willing to uh, disappoint us with some of the prayers that he writes about Mary, he is not yet deluded enough to think that she's sinless or that she's preserved free of original sin. Um, You know, Bernard's argument was it's contrary to tradition. You can't find it in the church tradition. You can't find it in scripture. And it's derogatory to the dignity of Jesus because he's the only sinless one. And... So, you know, good on Bernard. Thank you. But it was, and it was opposed by the vast majority of writers in the 12th century and beyond. And yet it did eventually catch on and it eventually became official church teaching 600 years later, 600 years later with Pope Pius IX. So um, this is just a quote from where he declares it to be uh, an infallible teaching of the church. But there's a final step when it comes to Mary, and The bodily assumption. What is the bodily assumption of Mary? Well, here we go. It is the belief that the Immaculate, as defined up here, Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, after completing her course of life upon earth, was assumed to the glory of heaven, both in body and soul. Uh, If you think about it, um, how does a person who is sinless and free of original sin... How do they die? How do they leave this world? Um, How's that supposed to happen? And of course, this leaves Roman Catholic writers uh, with sort of a little bit of a conundrum. Does Does she die a natural death like all of us? It seems like when we're in heaven, the body we're given is not going to die. And yet we're teaching that Mary receives this very body. And so how are we supposed to solve this conundrum? How does she die? Well, the answer is she doesn't die. Here we go. Um, Yeah. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, So they say the bodily assumption is this. It's the belief that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, after completing her course of life on earth, was assumed to the glory of heaven both in body and soul. And then it includes this ominous statement. It says, if anyone, which may God forbid, should dare either to deny this or voluntarily call into doubt what has been defined by us, he should realize that he has cut himself off entirely from the divine and Catholic faith. So this is, this is not a doctrine that you can take or leave. right? As far as they're concerned, this isn't an essential. This is as important as belief in the deity of Jesus. As much as you need to believe in the deity of Christ, you need to believe that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven and she did not die a natural death on this earth. Um, again, Ludwig Ott says that direct and express scriptural proofs are not to be had. Well, he didn't have to say that. I think we knew that, but he, he says it anyway, which is at least helpful. How do you get this sort of teaching? If, you, if it's not even implied in the scripture, you don't find it in the early church fathers. You barely find it in uh, any medieval writers even hinted at. So how do you get here? Well, you have a, a reference in an apocryphal document from the fifth century that makes reference to this. Um, the first mention of it is found in a document condemned as heretical by Pope Galatius. Uh, the closest you get from a source that isn't apocryphal and isn't heretical is a tradition called the Dormition of the Mother of God. That was a tradition that we knew of around the 800s and That tradition said that Mary did not suffer or experience pain in her death. So in the 800s, you know, some people are teaching, well, Mary did die, but she did not suffer and she didn't feel pain when she died. Uh, But again, that's a very far cry from the bodily assumption from her essentially ascending into heaven, right? So there's one Roman Catholic apologist, Carl Keating. Um, He still really exposes the fact that there's no biblical ground for this belief. Listen to what he says still fundamentalists ask where is the proof from scripture strictly there is none it was the catholic church that was commissioned by christ to teach all nations and to teach them infallibly the mere fact that the church teaches the doctrine of the assumption as something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true so you don't need to go to scripture you don't need to even find it in the early church fathers the fact that we said it means that it's the case so you can also imagine why it wasn't defined until 1900 years after the death of Jesus. Um, the teachings on the authority and importance of the church had not evolved to what they were in the 20th century yet. Um, the Ascension of Isaiah is the first place you see that referenced. And he declared it to be heretical at the end of the 5th century. So the first document that referenced the Assumption of Mary Uh, Though heretical, Roman Catholics still want to appeal to it. They still want to say, see, somebody believed it, even though it was a group that believed in subordination in the Trinity. Until it was declared and defined as a doctrine of the church in 1950, there was still a place to question such a horrifying teaching and and hold it up to the light of Scripture. But now Roman Catholic apologists simply defend it by saying this is what the church defined in 1950, and so it's so. None of this means there, there weren't people who were teaching and believing these things before they were defined. so just know that 1950, the only reason it's safe to declare it as a as a believed doctrine of the church in the 1950s is because there were plenty of people who believed it before then. Um, you know the the prayer that I read from Alphonsus Ligori was written in the 1700s, so you know just know that a lot of the things that we see are developing over time and they don't emerge instantly. They emerge very much over time in traditions. The Middle Ages is really the time when we start to see the seed form of these things begin. And that of course has an impact on the subject of why we're talking about this today, which is worship, right? The way that it ties into the church's worship. If you believe that Jesus is still angry with you And that you need a mediator to stand between you and him. The anger of the blessed savior. I want to just tell you that that is not a way to honor Mary. It is a way to dishonor her son. Who loves sinners. And who would not break a bruised reed. The Roman Catholic Church. With their beliefs on Jesus. And his need to. Mary's need to mediate for us. Actually teaches that a bruised reed he would break. I really, I really believe that that they, I don't know how they, I don't know how they reckon with a passage like the one that we looked at today in the sermon. But it dishonors the son. The now here is the thing, and this is what I've got down here at the bottom. I'm going to push this further away so that more of you in the front can see this. Um, the Catholic Church is very insistent they do not worship Mary we do not worship Mary. I know that you heard that prayer at the beginning and you're like, wait a minute. Are you sure they don't worship Mary? They don't worship Mary because they say they don't worship Mary. Let me explain. Um, The Eastern and Western church defended their use of icons by saying, we're not worshiping the images, we're what? What did they say they were doing? We're honoring the images, right? We're venerating the images. We can venerate, we can honor something without worshiping it. And what does the church do when it comes to Mary and the saints, right? They do the same thing. They say, we're not worshiping them. We're praying to them. We're talking about their worthiness. We're adoring them. Uh, But that's not worship. That's not worship. And so you see a final form of the Roman church's doctrine in this distinction between these three things in worship. The first is Latria. These are Greek words. Latria, dulia, hyperdulia. So what they say is, look, in scripture, latria is worship. It's the thing that only God could, should receive. Only God, only uh, one of the three persons of the Godhead should ever receive latria. This is like a, this is like a sacrifice of praise. This is a, a sacrificial type love. Only God should get that. But then what do we do with Say the saints, right? We get an icon in front of us. It's a picture of Peter, maybe, and we say, "I want to ask Peter to help me. I want to ask Peter to 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 strengthen me for something." Well, you're not worshiping Peter. They say you're you're, you're doing you're giving him dulia, you're giving him um, you're giving him reverence, you're giving veneration, but you're not worshiping him. You're not worshiping Peter. But then they say, you know, look, the thing we do for Mary kind of got to be better than that right and so they have something they call hyperdulia. so it's above dulia i should have put it higher sorry should have put it above dulia it's better than veneration but not technically worship right so we're we're doing this thing we're, we're talking about adoring mary we're talking about her greatness we're talking about her as saving us but But by no means is it worship. It's just really, you know, it's just close to it. But it's not. It's not worship. Yeah, Micah. Isn't it amazing from this list that you have up
1: there that everything they say about Mary is true? body after death and resurrection, but was assumed again into heaven, and now he is the king of heaven, who is worthy of true worship, but he's also worthy of veneration. Mm -hmm. And
0: you should do all of these things for Jesus.
1: And should we be surprised, right, when scripture tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, he takes all the things that a true angel looks like. And he applies it to himself falsely. The beast in Revelation images Christ and it says he he appears to have died and resurrected, right? We should expect false worship to mirror true worship only in a way that degrades Mm -hmm. the one who's worthy of true
0: worship. Yeah, I mean, I think Micah put it very well. Um, Just in case someone's listening to the recording. Basically, all that stuff we said about Mary is true of Jesus. And we're stealing glory from Jesus, giving that glory to his mother instead, which she wouldn't want. She, she loved her son. And by the end of her life, she knows who her son is and she worships him fully for who he is. The best way that you could honor Mary is by going to her son, going to Jesus, listening to him. Um, that is a way to truly honor Mary as she was and as she should be understood. Um. Thomas Aquinas, though, is the theologian who finalizes this distinction here. Um, uh, he's the guy who, if you go to, you can find the Catholic distinction between all of these things. Um, so here's the thing. If you were to go to the Catholic Church today and you were to say, are you worshiping Mary? In fact, I just earlier today, because I didn't want to misrepresent Catholics, I typed in the question, do Roman Catholics worship Mary? And you go to this page where they strongly insist. They, they say, no, absolutely not. That is a slander against us. Um, we give her veneration, but we do not adore. We do not worship. So then I go to that book, The Glories of Mary, because um, I have it in Lagos, And I search for the word adore to see maybe they don't worship Mary. Maybe they don't adore Mary. Well, they use the word worship to describe what they do for Mary. And the book repeatedly like 50 times uses the word adore. Mother of God, we adore you, right? Um, so there, is, there seems to be a massive disjunction between official Catholic church teaching and the practice of people on the ground in terms of what they are actually doing. When you pick up a devotional book written for Roman Catholics, um, specifically the Glories of Mary, and you look inside of there, there's adoration all over that book. And if they are correct that adoration and worship are seen as the same thing to them, then they're doing it without knowing that they're doing it. And basically they're saying, yes, those seem like prayers of worship. Yes, Pope Alexander in a papal bull said that Christians offer devotion and worship to Mary. Um, Yes, we pray and come to Mary in our prayers because the son is not gracious enough. We need the graciousness of the mother. Yes, our books are filled with statements that we adore Mary, but we don't worship her. Why? Why? Well, because it says in our church documents that we're not worshiping her. And so we're not because we technically say we're not. You know, we are very, very far afield from talking about the unhealthy developments that took place in the church in the Middle Ages, right? We're way, we're way on the other side of the Middle Ages by this point. Um, at this point, we're talking about the bodily assumption of Mary. We're talking about things that were invented out of thin air in the 1500s, 1800s, 1900s. But they were all built upon groundwork that was laid in the Middle Ages. And just like with the images, I, you know, I, show, I tried to show you hopefully with the images and the icons, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens as the church grows and as the church is infused with people who don't think like Jewish people. Instead, they think like Gentiles who are used to physicalizing their religion. Well, similar thing happens here. Um, is it any wonder that an Italian-centric version of Christianity emerges in a culture in which, in which the mother is held in such a high place in the family, mm-hmm. right? Culturally speaking, I- Italian – just read ancient histories of Rome and you find out that the, that the women are really the ones pulling the strings of power in many cases and that they end up being more venerated and highly held than their own son, Caesar Augustus's mother had more titles than he did. Um, just fascinating to see, and then she gets, and then she loses her mind when her next, when the next Caesar is not nearly as interested in her. Um, mothers in that culture have a strong position. It's not strange to think that this develops in the Roman Church, um, even in a way that the Eastern Church doesn't. So, in the um, what I, I, I actually don't think I could wrap it up better than, than the way Micah did. Yeah, Eric, maybe you can wrap it up better than me. Um, <laughs> just setting you up for success, man.
1: Yeah. Yes, man. Um, when, when did the Hail Mary prayer um, begin? Because, I mean, when you, when you hear that prayer, it just it sounds, just the words they say sound like worship. And <clears throat> another example of a, of a distinction without a difference, right?
0: <laughs> I don't know the answer. Maybe someone else does. John, um, the evangelical converts to Catholicism have
1: said to me, um, we'll pray to Mary or Peter Paul. It's like just asking your friends to pray for you. You ask your friends to pray for you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Well I you know, I would say, Well they're not my friends but it's it's that's that's the gateway that for a lot of
0: Mm-hmm. No, you just, just pray for them. Yeah. yeah. ask a living person to pray for you well they're still alive they're just not here that's, that's the idea
1: so when Mary that's, says my soul rejoices in God my savior you know in the Magnificat uh, isn't she acknowledging that she's a sinner needing a savior
0: yes uh, the fact that God is her savior right, so how they address
1: that
0: he's her savior he, he gave her salvation when she was conceived mm-hmm. That's probably, I mean, that's retroactive, but yeah. I can't get past this one. Uh, it, it
1: might not be in context for this
0: discussion. Mm-hmm.
1: What do they do with the actual birth of Christ? Do they, where, where are they on this process? Do
0: you mean, are you talking about Mary being, when she was a
1: virgin, when she conceived?
0: They, they, say that, they say that Jesus miraculously passed from her body without breaking the hymen, if I could be just blunt. If that's what you're asking.
1: In that context, yeah. in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the word of God to create and bring his own son into the human being, Gino, uh mm-hmm. into the tribe of Judah, into the salvation promises of the Old Testament. Uh, it seems like they've run so far down this track. Uh, what in the world do they do with the right road of God on this thing?
0: So one thing I want you to see, the reason I'm... This might seem really far from this might just seem like, oh, is, is Adam like on a, uh, you know, a, uh, kick where he just wants to trash Roman Catholicism? No, no. If we if we want to understand the desperate need for worship reform that the Reformation represents, we have to understand how far things have sunk mm-hmm. by the time luther nails the 95 theses to the wittenberg church door we need to understand the context here because the reformation is not just a bunch of scholars sitting around going you know we need to really perfect that language on the subject of justification it is important actually it's desperately important but it's really a need for worship reform too so you've got, you've got a church that's in need of, of reform. You've got worship that is desperately in need of reform. And you have average people in the church who do not know what on earth is going on. They don't know what's being taught. They don't understand the gospel. They don't have the scriptures for themselves. All of the things that they desperately need, they don't have. So when Luther emerges on the scene in the 1500s, just know he is coming to a church that is truly at its lowest point. It's so low that even the Roman Catholic Church with the Council of Trent later on, they're admitting these problems. Like they're admitting the structural, moral problems in the church. But instead of responding by saying, Luther has a point, we need to go back to the scriptures. They instead double down on the church authority and they say, you know, yes, we're gonna reform some of this worship, but it's actually gonna be a doubling down on all the worst features of what's been growing. Mm -hmm. So- Just know that like when we get to the Reformation, the Council of Trent's not until after the Reformation. It's a response from the Roman Catholic Church to the Reformation. And it's the reformers who are saying, we've got to bring the scriptures to the church. People need to have Jesus again, not Mary and not the saints and not all of these ceremonies, but they need to know what it is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. And we need to remove all of the, the dross that has developed around all of this, that is obscuring Jesus instead of giving him to people. So I still, in spite of all of this, I want you to think of this as your church, but it is your very disappointing church (laughs) because it is a deeply disappointing church by this point in human history. Um, But you should also know there are groups that are keeping the gospel alive. A, you've got true believers within the bounds of the medieval church. You have true believers within the bounds of the medieval church. Many of them, just like all of us, have wrong views. Like, I'm gonna get to heaven. I'm gonna find out that I was wrong about stuff. Uh, Sitting around at my pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, I was sitting with my friends and I said, okay, okay, when you get to heaven, which of our doctrines do you think we will find out what's the most likely doctrine that we have that we're gonna find out we were wrong on? I won't tell you what the answer was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe later you know uh buy me a beer or something i might you might get it out of here <laughs> but you know we all sat around and we said we're gonna find stuff we're gonna find stuff jesus is going to say there are things that you are wrong on um and I, I do believe that um but he shows us right now in the scripture the problem is with us if we don't understand what he said in the word not the other way around the problem is not with him and it's not because he hasn't shown it to us um but the church at this point is like that where they're, they're riddled with error and God's word has the correction. So anyway, when we, when we go to look at it next week and we start to look at the period of the reformation, hopefully it'll be more refreshing than this because to me, this is like breathing bad air. You know, this to me feels suffocating. It feels, it feels like smog and I, I'm eager to get back to the word of God and exactly, that's exactly what's represented in the reforms of the uh, reformers, so Let me pray for us, uh, and then we can talk more after. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you, your son, Jesus Christ, came into the world, born of a woman, that he lived the perfect life for us, that he was free of the stain of original sin. We thank you that he lived a perfect life, We thank you that when presented with opportunities to sin, he never said yes. We thank you that even after he died, he was raised up by the spirit's power and that he ascended to sit at your right hand. We thank you for our glorious savior, Jesus, who deserves all of our worship, all of our hope and everything that we we could possibly ever want. I pray that we would trust in him I pray that if there are human things or devices or creations that we do trust in, that you would correct us and that you would draw us back to yourself. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.